This is episode number 30 with Mark Robert Waldman, one of the world's leading neuroscience researchers on consciousness, communication, and spirituality, and his discoveries have been published in journals throughout the world. Welcome to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast. My name is Andrea Samadhi, a former educator who's been fascinated with understanding the science behind high-performance strategies in schools, sports, and the workplace for the past 20 years. Today, we have one of the leading neuroscience researchers in the country, who I was blessed to be mentored by five years ago when I needed to add the most current brain research to my programs. Mark has an international practice as a neuro coach, training students and business leaders how to use the latest discoveries in neuroscience to enhance personal and professional development. I can say that if I was able to learn this information, well enough to teach it to others that anyone can. Mark took his time and was patient as I learned the basics of neuroscience, and he taught me in such a way that I never felt the information was too difficult to grasp, though it did take effort and focus to learn these new concepts. Mark has authored 14 books, including the bestseller, How God Changes Your Brain, which was an Oprah pick from 2012. His new book called Neurowisdom, The New Brain Science of Money, Happiness, and Success contains 100 evidence-based strategies with guided audios and videos showing you how to manipulate and balance the major networks of consciousness, awareness, and imagination. These tools are now used in schools, health centers, and businesses throughout the world. He teaches at Loyola Marymount University, and his work has been featured in Time Magazine, The Washington Post, the New York Times, Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Oprah Magazine. He's been on hundreds of radio and television programs, including PBS and NPR, and I could go on, but just go to his website, markrobertwaldman.com, and you can learn more about, about Mark. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for having me again. It's always fun to speak with you, Mark, and I'm so grateful for everything that you've taught me. I know that you've got a presentation planned and you're going to share your screen with us, but before we dive into that, can you just explain what exactly is NeuroWisdom, the title of your most recent book, and how we can discover this new voice to guide us towards a greater sense of awareness in our life? Sure. It's an interesting kind of word, and I liked it because it was different from any other type of word that's out there. So neurowisdom would be, you know, neuro as in neuron, as the nerve cells in our brain, and wisdom being wisdom. So what I'm suggesting in that, in that phrase is that there's a particular aspect of certain neural networks within your brain that have a type of wisdom that's very different from the way that we normally think about problems. So it's kind of like, Right now, if you're sitting there and you're reading a book and you're trying to take a test or something like that, we're using outer wisdom. We're we're using the things that we were taught to use. But there's another part of our brain, and it involves two of the most important structures uh, called the anterior cingulate and the insula. And these, when they begin to activate, give us a more intuitive sense of the way in which our brain is designed to gather information and to use its own inner creativity to find solutions that are very different from the way we normally think about a problem. That's what neurowisdom is. Powerful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your research with us. Do you want to just get started right with your presentation? Sure. Let's let's jump in. And the good news is, is that everything I taught you a couple of years ago doesn't count anymore. There's a brand new language in neuroscience that's emerged over the last few years, and I'm going to be thrilled to show that to you because it actually makes explaining brain science a lot easier than at any other time in the past. I'm more than happy to jump right into uh, what I call brain-based experiential learning, which is an element that we talked about for the first time in the NeuroWisdom book. Because if you basically commit yourself to the field of neuroscience, what neuroscience shows us is a very different educational model than, uh, than, than, what, uh, than what we currently do. And it's so radically different that 
I suspect it'll take 20 or 30 years to actually integrate into the elementary school, high school, or college university level. But we have been experimenting with it for eight years at Loyola Marymount University. And, the, what, and what brain-based experiential learning and living is about, and those letters are B-E-L-L, so it's kind of like uh, we, we tie it into the bell, and I'll explain why in a moment, is that we ask our students not just to use the everyday law, uh, you know, knowledge that you're learning. You're sitting there in the classroom, you're listening to the teacher, and then you're trying to write down notes that you think are important for what you can be tested on. In this new model, we do something very different. And ideally, it would be a matter of having the teacher speak for about five minutes, and I've been speaking to you for about five minutes, and then I, as the teacher, would pause, and I would ask all of my students in the class to do the following thing. I'll ask them to close their eyes. I'm gonna ask them to yawn a few times and to mindfully stretch and move and, you know, and relax and actually forget about everything I just said. And when they're in this deep state of relaxed, mindful awareness, I'm then gonna say, what I want you to do is to simply write down the first thing that intuitively comes to you that you found to be the most interesting in the last five minutes of teaching that I did. And what's interesting about this is that if you have 25 students in your classroom, you'll get about 15 to 20 different answers to whatever you thought you were teaching. And most of the time, it's very different than what I, the teacher, had hoped my student to learn. But here's the cool thing. Your brain and my brain is designed to pick out information as it suits me, not as it suits the teacher. So that's a really, really big and important discovery that neuroscience has made. Our brain learns in one way that's totally different from the way we have created our educational system. So if you want, I'll jump into a little uh, uh, slide presentation that I, cre that I created for us. Perfect. So... This is, this is our model called Brain-Based Experiential Learning and Living. And I'm going to introduce you to, uh, briefly to the 12 Bell Principles, and I'll guide you and the, and the viewer through several of these as well. And on my first uh, slide, basically, this is a model showing our Bell Principles, and they kind of evolve over time. So the model that you'll see uh, in our book is a little bit different from this. And basically it works like this. The best state to be in, if you're going to perform any particular task, whether it be at work, whether it be learning and studying something, the first thing you wanna do is simply take 60 seconds to go into a deep state of relaxation. And then if you sit back and you visualize what you want to accomplish, over the next 20, 30, 40 minutes of work, you hold that visualization in your mind, then you throw yourself into your work. You then focus on the specific task that you have. Now, what happens is that when you're focusing, using your, you're using a very small part of your brain to stay highly focused and attentive on whatever task you have. But the neurotransmitters that are essential for staying highly focused get exhausted rather quickly. And when that happens, even without your awareness, your highly focused attention will switch off and you'll go into this mind-wandering, daydreaming-like state. And we literally spend half of our time in our waking state in this mind-wandering, daydreaming-like state and going back and forth between that and focused attention. So a lot of emphasis has been put upon don't spend too much time up here letting your mind wander away. I mean, I mean, I remember in second grade, for example, uh, the teacher was teaching something and I started just, you know, looking out of the window and I got yelled at. So the rule was very simple. Stay focused on what I'm doing. Don't let your mind wander. At that time, nobody knew about this key neuroscientific principle, which is our mind is designed to wander two or three or four times every couple of minutes. And if we don't allow that to happen, 
we use up the neurochemicals necessary to stay highly focused and we end up learning less. And if you apply that in the work situation, you end up leading to work burnout. So highly focused, you know, type A types of personalities, they can stay focused on their task and do it for 10 or 12 hours and spend very little time mind wandering. And then they'll go through maybe six months to two years of work burnout. So it's very, very important to go back and forth between this mind wandering, daydreaming like state, which is one network in your brain, and this highly focused attentive area, which is involved with planning, decision making, uh, carrying out any specific task. So if we're going from I'm being relaxed, I'm visualizing my goal, I'm going to focus my attention on that particular task at the hand. When I begin to feel a little bit tired, which I'm usually not aware of, which is why we're going to use that mindfulness bell. And while you see that picture of the bell over there in the corner, we're going to allow ourselves to daydream just for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 seconds. That's all. Then we can throw ourselves back into focusing. We can go back and forth between focusing and daydreaming. But if we really are in the educational environment, right before the teacher is going to teach something, we ask all of our students to deeply relax. We ask them to visualize what their goal and desire is. Why have you come to my classroom? What are you hoping to learn from me or from this particular textbook? Visualize that. Take a full 10, 15 seconds to immerse yourself in the sense of what you want to accomplish over the next hour of my teaching. Then focus on five minutes of what I'm going to be talking about. Then I'm going to pause and we're all going to relax again and allow yourself to actually daydream. Just let your mind wander for 10, 15, 20 seconds. And then you ask your intuition, which is at the center of my drawing here. Ask your intuition, what did it find to be the most interesting about anything I've said so far? Once that has happened, and you write that down on a piece of paper, I want you to then, I, we want our students to sit there and again to deeply relax, close their eyes again, and to savor that little bit of insight, that little bit of discovery, the thing that your brain found to be the most interesting and valuable. And so in this process, we're going back and forth, brief segments of teaching, and it becomes a far more enjoyable experience. And when you allow yourself that freedom to focus your attention and to mind wander and daydream and to use your intuition, it becomes much easier for you to immerse yourself in the enjoyment of your work, even if it's tedious work, and in the enjoyment of studying, even if the material seems and feels overwhelming at the time. Which brings us to the next uh, bell principle, which is to always maintain a sense of optimism. Even if you're filled with self-doubt, even if you think you're going to fail at that class, even though you've been a terrible student in the past, you sit there, and again, you can go through the same, I mean, this is basically a mindfulness strategy. You relax, you visualize yourself as being successful. You take a moment and just imagine yourself as uh, being optimistic, knowing that everything is going to turn out well. Focus on your particular task. Immerse yourself then in that sense of what you've accomplished over the last five or 10 or 15 minutes. Savor it, enjoy the experience, and then take that mindful, relaxed awareness that you were beginning to develop and begin to interact with other people as you stay consciously aware, consciously relaxed, consciously focused on the goals and desires and dreams that you want to carry out in that interaction with each other. So that's a whole bunch of information. You know, I have a whole book based on guiding students and teachers and coaches and business leaders through this particular process. But I want to give you an experiential sense of that right now, because remember, it's brain-based experiential learning and living. That's what the word bell means. So everyone, Andrea, you close your eyes. Everyone who's watching this video, go ahead and close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to relax by simply doing any form of yawning or stretching or relaxation strategy that you know of. I'm going to introduce you to some very different ones later on. But take a moment now and deeply relax. I like the yawning strategy. 
And now all I want you to do is just sit there and let your mind wander and daydream and go wherever it wants to go as you ask your intuition the following question. What have you found to be the most interesting in anything I've said over the past five minutes? And give yourself some time because your intuition speaks to you from a level that's not language-based, not the way we normally think, not the way we normally analyze. So it's kind of a, a felt sense of something that seemed valuable, interesting, you know, or important. So Andrea, using your imagination, using your intuition, using your creativity, what's the first thing that came to your mind that your brain found to be really interesting? Definitely the intuition part in the middle. Now take a moment and savor that. And everybody who's watching this, you can write that down if whatever came to your intuition, you felt was important. So it's very important to write down these intuitive insights that you have because the brain doesn't really spend much time embedding that information into long-term memory. Just like for anything else that you're learning, you have to repeat it over and over again in different ways so that you form a stronger, stronger memory. You also have to do this if you want to learn how to uh, intuitively and optimistically explore new material and learn in the way that your brain is designed to learn. So all I'm, all I'm going to do is ask everyone, let's do the same thing again. Close your eyes, yawn, stretch, relax, and ask your intuition, what's another intuitive insight or discovery that came up for you? So I'm going to keep pushing my students until they get to a place where nothing seems to come to mind, so they're not using the way they normally think. What's the next thing that intuitively comes to your mind, Andrea, of what you found interesting or what your brain found interesting? I'm just remembering this uh, baseball player. Um, I forget his name. It was uh, Wilson Ramos from the Mets. And I watched him meditate before a game. And then I watched his performance in the game be like he hit a home run and he did really well in the game while everyone else was just warming up. So I was wondering you know, how many people use this before uh, sports games, um, in the workplace, not just in schools. So you see how interesting it was? You came up with something that was certainly totally surprising to me. I would have never guessed that you would have, that your intuition would have said that, but that's what we honor. And then you and I can together engage in a relaxed and mindful dialogue about this. I'm willing to bet that did you actually see him meditating? Yeah, I actually watched him sit down on the field. And I was a little bit surprised because everyone else was throwing the ball back and forth. And of course, with my work in, in this area, I was watching him and to see what he was doing. And he was definitely sitting either praying, meditating. He was off by himself, mindful, for sure. And the basic training for that type of mindfulness-based meditation uh, is to maybe just sit there and just focus in on your breathing for a few minutes or so. What's interesting because, you know, we've been involved in doing brain scan studies of all different types of meditation practices for the last 20 years. And what we find is that very brief moments of self-reflective awareness is enough to have quite a profound effect on integrating many of the different networks throughout your brain. So you don't have to do it for the formal 20 or 40 minutes. You don't have to do it for the briefer five or 10 minute periods of time. You only need to commit yourself to 10 seconds to 60 seconds of simply focusing on any activity that you want. And that could be focusing on your breathing, focusing in on like a keyword, like I wanna feel more calm and grounded. But what I'm introducing is the other side of mindfulness. So mindfulness has two things. The John Kabat-Zinn's original definition is moment-to-moment -moment awareness of any thought, feeling, or sensation that wanders into your consciousness. And when you sit back and you watch, it's called open, it's called, uh, open monitoring. One is focusing on your breathing that helps you to focus literally on any particular task. The other one, if you just sit back and watch all of this mind-wandering cacophony going on, 
That's also an essential element to learn how to do. You are calmly watching this busy mind of yours. And what you'll see in this creative imagination center is that one part is always creating negative predictions about the future. You do this, this, and this, something awful is going to happen. The other side of your hemisphere is more optimistic. It's generating, oh, if I do this, this, and this, something wonderful is going to happen. They are both going on at the same time. And what causes anxiety, which is probably, you know, anxiety is basically the form of mental stress that we have. That's what happens most of the time in the classroom. We are trying to push ourselves to learn too much, to study too much, to be too perfect on our next test, unless you just don't care about it. And we never have fun with our students who don't care about that. But the rest of everybody else is basically building up a format of being, of learning through anxiety. So rather than pushing yourself to do as best as possible, what if you were to take one minute every half hour in the classroom situation and just watch how you were being anxious about your learning experience, about your studying experience. What if you were to take 30 seconds before you take a test and sit back and watch all of the thoughts and feelings you have about taking that test? Part of us saying, you know, I wonder if I'm going to fail. Am I going to go do, am I going to do good enough? Another part say, oh, I have this material down fast, whatever else. By watching how you think, about your academic experience or your work experience, the process of, of watching that sense of awareness actually helps you to disconnect from the negative emotional sides of our worries and our fears and our doubts. So yes, that's what he was doing when he was going out in the field, he was taking a moment to just disconnect from the way he normally thinks and feels, ground himself maybe more in the present moment, and that's why we're seeing mindfulness sweep through the sports community, through the educational community, but the community that has grabbed hold of these brief mindfulness practices the most turns out to be the business community. Because in the business world, you know, because I teach executive MBA students, they are CEOs and managers of multi-million dollar companies, and I can't get them to commit to five minutes of meditation at any time during the day but they will commit to downloading that obnoxious mindfulness bell. <laughs> we have it go off, you know, two, you know, two or three times an hour. And when that happens, just interrupt yourself and we have them do one mindful yawn or one super slow movement or stretch or one activity that causes a sense of relaxation or pleasure. And then they throw themselves back into their work and for eight years in a row, um, 80 to 90% of our students immediately experience, within the first four days, an incredible drop in work-related stress and an incredible improvement in work productivity. And we know that the same thing will happen if we bring this into the educational model. You can bring these brief little mindfulness exercises all the way down to the level of kindergarten. But again, a young child spends way too much time in their imagination center. They haven't even developed the neurological capacity to stay focused for more than a minute or two, which again makes me question, why do we keep our young students in a classroom environment for an entire hour? The module should be five minutes long. And then there should be a break to be mindfully relaxed and playful. And so you can introduce kids just, well, just listen to the sound of the bell. Tell me what it feels like. You know, just take a moment and, you know, maybe put one hand on your chest and one hand on your belly and breathe in and out and just notice how that feels. And then they can share that with other classroom members. And the research is fascinating. One week of kids doing these two or three minutes of mindfulness practices during, during the during, uh, you know, throughout, you know, in just even once in, in the daytime, when they go out at lunchtime to play on in the playground, you see more pro-social behavior. They cooperate and get along better with each other. Stop doing that in the next week, and they go back to this kind of greedy, selfish, unaware state. So mm -hmm. it seems to be that you can even do this with a, you know, with a five or six-year-old. You can teach them how to become aware of their breathing, aware of a sound, 
aware of maybe they feel angry or frustrated. And then when they go out on the playground, they automatically have more awareness of everybody else around them. And they tend to be more cooperative, more engaging, more empathetic, more compassionate. Isn't that amazing? It's powerful, Mark. I just uh, downloaded the app yesterday and followed the directions from your book to have it go off a couple times an hour. And I didn't even have the ding go off. I just felt it vibrate. I'm like, it's already going off. But when it dings on my phone, my, the goal, the thing that I'm focused on working on right now comes up. So twice an hour, I'm, my mind is going back to what I'm working on rather than before. I was just, you know, morning and night looking at what I'm working on. Now it's a few times an hour and it's a, a big difference. So what you're saying is why we ask, we have teachers uh, do this. They can download an app in their classroom. We certainly have all of our executive MBA students when they're in the workplace download it, uh, you know, on, onto their cell phone. There's a lot of very simple and easy apps. I think you can see, I don't know how clearly you can see uh, down at the bottom of the page, one of the many apps that you can get, but it, it's very simple. Just you, you go to your app store, whether you have an iPhone or, a, or an Android and just pick one of the free, uh, it'll be called either a mindfulness bell or a mindfulness clock. Mm -hmm. Download it and set it to ring two or three times an hour. The first two times you hear it, just pause for 10 seconds and do one of the following, you know, what I'm going to teach you is what our brain scan studies and research have shown as being the most effective and fastest ways to get rid of that excessive neurological stress that will interfere with our ability to focus on whatever goal we have. The goal might be to get an A on the next class. The goal might be to complete a particular project at a particular time. But again, always in this process, what I'm trying to introduce everyone to is don't talk too long. Don't teach for too long. So again, if I pause and have everyone watching this and you too, Andrea, to just sit back and relax again, and this time allow your mind to just wander for a full 30 seconds and just pay attention and watch all the different thoughts and pieces that float in and out of your consciousness. All I'm doing is teaching you, teaching my students and uh, how to enter these relaxed states of mindful awareness in five minutes of training rather than eight weeks of classroom teaching. Just have fun with it. Just watch how your mind bounces all over the place. And if it doesn't bounce all over the place, how wonderful. You're enlightened. So I'll be quiet for a few minutes so everyone can have an experience of the chatter that's always going on in the imagination center or network in your brain. And Andrea, if I, if you, if I was to ask you to try to just put into words all the different thoughts or feelings that pop in and out of your consciousness, share with me what you are experiencing. Yeah, definitely. I do this every morning when I wake up. I do uh, a 30-minute one, so I'm working on this every day, but uh, it's everything that I'm working on in the day, family, friends, people all over the world come in and out of my head all the time. So just always thinking about what I'm working on, who's in my life, family. So, so pause right there. Notice all the thoughts you're having. Let them go. Maybe come back to your breathing or do a mindful yawn. That mindful yawn is the fastest way to slow down excessive neurological activity in those parts of the brain that cause stress and anxiety. What's the next thing that pops into your mind? Probably goals that I'm working on. So notice that one, let that thought float away. What's the next thought that enters your head? My kids and their homework and their grades and what I'm making for dinner and that kind of stuff. Perfect, notice that, let that float, thought float away. Tell me what the next one is. Who I'm gonna invite as a guest on this podcast next. Yeah, 
So you see how these thoughts are always going on. They're always going around in the background. But if you get too caught up in that imagination center, which is also called your resting state or your default mode network, your mind wandering state, then you can't focus on any one specific task. So we do have to learn how to turn off that imagination and to throw ourselves and to stay focused on our particular goal. So one of my particular goals is, let me see if I can go through all these slides very quickly. No. So to create a sense of awareness, we can do that with anything. We can ask a child or a person or an adult, you know, you know, a manager, an employee, to just spend a moment deeply listening to the sound of the bell and immersing themselves into it. It's a form of awareness or to take a moment and just pay attention to their breathing. How's it, what does it feel like to breathe in the cool air? What does it feel like when you breathe out the warm air? But in everything that we've been writing about for the past uh, 10 years, we have been focusing on the mindful yawn because it's a, turns out that yawning is a thermoregulatory mechanism. It brings a tremendous amount of blood flow up into, in particular, this imagination center that I'll talk about in a moment, which is where all that busyness and mind wandering and anxiety is going on. This is all the stuff that's trying to predict a positive or negative future. It's not about the present, it's not about the past, it's just about what may happen. It's just your fantasies and imagination. It's about prediction, what may happen. That mindful yawn, if you're too much caught up in that, you're worried about what's going to happen. I'm afraid that I'm going to fail that test. That's going to interfere with your ability to focus on taking that test, for example, in the schoolroom. The mindful yawn turns down and turns off that excessive neurological activity going on here. It actually becomes less active. So I'd like everyone to do one mindful yawn right now. And a mindful yawn simply means pay attention to where that yawn begins. Notice how it feels while you yawn. And then after you've yawned, just take 10 seconds to sit there and see if you become aware if there's any changes in your physical state or your mental state or your mood. Ready? Begin with a mindful yawn. What do you notice, Andrea? I'm relaxed. And that's oftentimes what the person will say the first time. If you have them do three mindful yawns, the second time, and particularly ask them to focus on, on their mental state or their mood, you'll feel something very different. So why don't we all just do one more mindful yawn and see if you can notice what happens in your mental state. Do you know this, Andrea? It's like a deeper relaxation. Maybe the breathing in more oxygen. Do you feel like you have more thoughts or less thoughts? More, more thoughts. More? More, yeah. Okay. Less. <laughs> Do another mindful yawn. So this one has made you aware of that imagination center going on. Let's see if the third mindful yawn creates another specific type of shift in your mental state. And we'll all do it along with you. What do you notice? Like, like way more peaceful. Yeah, so words like calm and peaceful comes up. You are now in the ideal state to focus on any specific task. Because while all that busyness was going on, that'll not help you organize your day, make plans, and make decisions. Now, 80% of the people will always find the mindful yawn to be the most useful way to get into that deep state of relaxed awareness. 
But another one is simply a super slow micro movement. You can like roll your head and take a full 60 seconds, or you can just twist or turn your body. But the slower you go, the more you're gonna feel. So most people do it way too fast. You see how slow I'm going? Mm -hmm. And then if you even cut the speed in half, you'll notice all these little tiny aches and pains in your neck. If you feel a particular pain, if you yawn into it, you'll usually notice that that pain will disappear because yawning also helps to regulate five of the 12 pain regulatory mechanisms in your brain. So that's what we offer. One mindful yawn, one super slow stretch because the slower you go, the more awareness you have. Awareness is the key to bring you out of too much mind wandering and busyness or too much over-focus and stress. And then maybe do one minute or even 10 seconds of something that's pleasurable. The easiest one is to simply sit there and, you know, stroke your palms or fingers in the most pleasurable way possible. You can do this in a, in a board meeting when you're feeling highly anxious. It's just enough to bring your awareness back into your body. And it turns off your ability to worry about what's happening, what may happen in the next moment. And then once every hour, just spend one minute daydreaming. So you've worked really hard. You've taken a 10 second mindful yawn, a 10 second super slow stretch. Now top of the hour, when you hear that bell go off again, then deliberately sit back and take a nap. And if you're really feeling tired, Set your timer for one to three minutes so it goes off. And when that bell goes off, you'll come out of an incredibly deep state, which is almost like that state that you're in when you're in a dream state. And you'll go, wow, you really went off. And that can be so totally refreshing that if you do that uh, once or twice every hour, you actually will be able to work for 12 or 14 hours a day without experiencing work burnout. So for these reasons, Mindfulness, when it's brought into the classroom, whether it be for kindergarten kids or for university kids, it will always promote a greater sense of neurological curiosity, neurological creativity, which is also part of this imagination network. And again, you, if you do this in a group with other individuals, you create a neurological form of increased empathy and more compassion and awareness of yourself, of your words. So if you even take a moment right now, and if I slow down and I make eye contact with you, and I allow myself to speak a little bit more slowly and clearly, your brain will be more neurologically attuned to me, will be able to create a better form of dialogue and cooperation. So, these are the strategies that we're working on to teach to others, that learning can be fun. It turns out that playfulness is one of the key emotional structures in the most primitive parts of your brain, but it's ignored you know, in our educational system, in our society. You know, you're supposed to be serious. You're not supposed to be playful. You're supposed to stay highly focused. You're not supposed to wander around in that creative part of your imagination. And the interesting thing about anxiety, because basically anytime you try to learn seriously, you try to push yourself to learn what you think you have to learn, that's going to create a form of neurological stress, which is all that anxiety is. And you can be anxious. You can worry about anything, your family, politics, self-image. You can have performance anxiety, whether you're on, on the sports field, you're going to stand up and give a public talk and you're worried about how other people may respond to you. Remember, it's always about the future. Anticipatory anxiety, another form. You know, I'm afraid that, you know, this or this may happen. And then you live in this state of anxiety thinking that something is going to go wrong. And yet the anxiety in the present moment undermines your ability to focus on the goals and desires that you really want to pursue. You know, health anxiety will undermine your ability to find solutions to health problems that you may really have. Social anxiety, we all have various forms of that. And this is simply a list of the different types of anxiety 
that different psychologists and educators have been able to identify. Existential anxiety. Why am I even listening to this? Why am I doing this? What's my life supposed to be about? And of course, the worst thing you can do is be anxious about your anxiety. <laughs> Everyone just take a moment and sit back and just spend the next 10 seconds thinking about something that makes you anxious, but just do it in this relaxed state of mindful awareness. You can even yawn into your anxiety. And one of the best ways to interrupt anxiety is again to ask your intuition, what have you found to be most interesting since, or ask, since the last time you intuitively inquired? What pops into your mind, Andrea? What have you found interesting in our last 10 minutes of engagement? Definitely, I think I worry about everybody else. I worry about my kids and my husband and... So then now I'm feeling anxious about the fact that I'm doing that. <laughs> so, but what happens if you just watch that anxiety? Do you become less anxious? Yeah, probably. Yeah, because I know that... The, what if you yawn you know, and stretch and attempt to immerse yourself in that anxiety? Watch what mm -hmm. happens. In other words, I'm asking you to deliberately be anxious. And I'm asking everybody who's watching this to also see if you can... What happens if you consciously attempt to immerse yourself in anxiety? It's almost as if it runs away. Yeah. Being awareness to anxiety stimulates the part of your brain that interrupts your imagination center from indulging in anxiety. That's what this new brain science is all about. Is that almost like you name it and you tame it? You know, once you talk about what you're anxious about, yeah, when you become aware of it, you don't react to it. You're simply accepting of it. It's the acceptance that allows it not to control your life. And so there's always a good side of anxiety as well, where you're anticipating what's about to happen. And you're curious about what's, what's happening in front of you. It may cause you a sense of excitement and enthusiasm. But you have to be careful that you do not fall into impatience about what's going to happen, or find yourself being bored. Boredom simply means your mind wants to be focusing on something that's more interesting to you. So there's always that good side of anxiety. If you're relaxed all the time, you won't feel motivated to do much of anything. Now here's what's important from a neuroscientific perspective. The neurons in your brain, they send out these long, axons that weave throughout your brain. This is, these are the network connections that tie together different processes. And the more you are engaged in anxiety and stress, these little tiny spines on your dendrites, the things that collect information from all the other neurons in your brain, begin to be destroyed. So you have less ability to make more connections. The more connections you can make, the more possibilities you have for coming up with creative, innovative, solutions to problems that you might be wrestling with. But the thing I just want everyone to remember is that anxiety is pure imagination. It doesn't really exist in the world. It's just that one part of your brain that's the pessimist about what might happen in the future and the other part that's the optimist about what might happen in the future. You simply spend too much time focusing on the pessimistic side and it undermines and creates an imbalance between all of these other networks within your brain. And so a lot of research shows that when you have a hyperactive imagination, so a lot of kids who get unfortunately diagnosed with ADD, they really are incredibly creative, imaginative kids. Just to give them a drug or force them to calm down is a poor way of dealing with that excessive creativity. Instead, you teach them how to harness that imagination into constructive projects that are interesting to them. Remember that our imagination and creativity and intuition and insights is based not upon what we think we want or what the outside world says we should be working on. It's what our brain is uniquely designed to go out and explore. Everybody has their own unique sense of, uh, of curiosity, what interests in them. 
that's why I said, if you go around the room and you ask anybody after a five minute lecture, what did they find interesting? It's going to be different for almost everyone. So this is an actual image in this top picture here of that imagination center. Uh, the neuroscientific term is the default mode network. It would be better if they called it the resting state because that's what happens when you sit back and you rest and you allow your mind to daydream. This huge area here becomes can be incredibly active. And that's the prediction and the fantasies and the imagination and the creativity of what's going on all the time. It's there to help you solve problems. It's there before you've developed a part of your brain in the lower part of your uh, drawing here. This is what you need. This is the only part of your brain that's active when you're focused on a task. So it turns off that busyness in that yellow section up here. And now you're kind of focused, and this is your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. This is where you make your best decisions from. This is the only place that you can plan and take action in a meaningful, constructive, organized way. And so ideally, you go back and forth between your imagination, the default mode network, and your ability to think and focus and concentrate, which is your central executive network. So you have to be able to create a type of balance. And if you're too overly creative and you're too wandering around or too anxious or too nervous, you can do those types of exercises to help you to focus your mind, focus in on your breathing, focus in on the sound of the bell, even picking a value word like, okay, I want to succeed, I want to remain calm, I want to finish this task in this period of time, and you create that almost like a, a repetitive affirmation. That helps to focus your mind. It turns off your imagination center. You have to be able to think clearly if you're going to really learn and concentrate and develop new skills that will help you in the future. So these are all the elements that are involved when you've turned off your imagination center and you're spending and you're thinking in a highly organized way. You can plan, you can organize, you can strategize, and that's what forms those deeper memories, which is happening here. Most of the time when we're thinking, we're just pulling up memories from the past and maybe a little tiny bit of imagination. But when we hit a barrier and a problem, that's where we have to deliberately go into that huge imagination center and let your intuition find its own creative solution to that. If you don't do that and take that kind of balance, you won't be able to take action to achieve your goals. But unfortunately in our educational system, there's no emphasis put upon imagination, mind wandering, daydreaming. So there's not gonna be much creativity going on and that's quite neurologically damaging. So too much, uh, you know, too much focus attention, you have work burnout, get lost in your imagination and your anxiety levels can go to such an extent that you have some serious uh, problems later on in life. But again, just to sit back and mindfully observe that anxiety, just focus in on different feelings, emotions and desires, just to take, to know you don't have to do it for 10 or 15 minutes, but just watch what happens in your imagination and accept whatever flows through you then if you use your ask your intuition, which is using an awareness part of your brain, a totally different network, it's not your thinking network, it's not your imagination network, it is your awareness network, which is part of your salience network. So I want you to begin to understand, instead of me talking about dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the medial prefrontal cortex that's connected to different parts of your precuneus and parietal lobe and the anterior cingulate and the insula that control the, you know, the imagine, you know, uh, control the awareness centers of your brain. We can now talk about it in very different language. I'm spending too much time in my imagination that's interrupting my ability to stay focused on the goals and desires that I really want. And all I have to do is to be aware of what's going on in my imagination and aware of how I am thinking. And that creates the ideal balance between three of the most important networks in the brain. Now, isn't that amazingly simple, new language? It is, it's powerful, Mark. When, when you're talking about intuition, I just have a question. Um, when you're 
talking about gut instinct and stuff, is there a way that we can misinterpret our intuition? How, how do we know? That's a, that's a great question. Because you are using your awareness to tap into the imagination center of your brain, intuition can be wrong, sometimes even half of the time. That's where we have to combine our intuitive you know, insights. We write them down on a piece of paper, and we combine them with all of the outer knowledge that we've learned. So you're bringing in that inner wisdom, that neuro wisdom, with all of the knowledge that you've gained in the past, your skills, and the knowledge of other people around you who are expert, and you want to bring them all together. But no matter how hard you try to predict the future, you'll never be certain of it. So at some particular point, you're going to have to use your intuition to trust whatever decision you make to take the specific action that will hopefully lead you to the goal that you desire. Is that clear? Very clear. Thank you. So this is what we're beginning to develop for individuals, how to rapidly just change your, to shift your awareness back and forth between your imagination and the way in which you think back and forth. And on the, on the uh, left-hand side, you can see, you know, when I talk about the insula, that's that little red area tucked in here, and this red area down here, that's your anterior cingulate. They work together to basically, that is your brain deciding what is valuable and meaningful and relevant to it. It's what's important to your brain, and it's called the salience network, which is this blue area over here. That's why the S is there for salience. The default mode network, I just prefer to call imagination because who knows what default mode means. And instead of talking about the central executive network, I'm talking about thinking. And these little tiny dots that you see here, that's just the area that we're conscious of. When I showed you that image before of the brain and those two little areas that were firing off, that's your dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. But this, the yellow part is the motivational center part of your brain. This is where curiosity is. This is where we ideally hope our students would be, that they want to learn all of this material. There's the stuff you have to learn that you hate, and that may have to be there for particular reasons, but we can design our programs in a way to make it more interesting, where you can stimulate the curiosity uh, network in your brain, which, I have, which I'll call the motivation network. And then, of course, we have to honor the emotional experience that's always happening to us. Learning is an emotional experience. Curiosity is an emotional experience. Relaxation is an emotional experience. Insights and the aha experience is an emotional experience. But all of these five key networks, they overlap in this area that is your anterior cingulate and insula. And the only strategy we know of for stimulating that important part of your brain that creates the perfect ideal network balance is that relaxed state of mindful awareness. By simply taking, you can't enter a state of mindfulness if you're all tense and stressed like that. That's the reason for that mindful yawn it's super slow movement. So that brings you into the present moment. And then it's easier for you to just mindfully observe your thoughts, your imagination, what motivates you, the emotions that are stirring on around in the background. So again, in essence, these five key networks, this is, you know, rather than, you know, they're, you know, you start out with a sense of emotional desire and that's tied in to your motivation center, which is curiosity, the yellow area. Next, the curiosity stimulates your ability to think about the things that have caught your attention that you might want to desire to go after. If you go after those things that you are curious about, your brain gets that dopamine reward that helps you become even more curious and interested in achieving other goals and doing other tasks to get there. Your imagination network needs to be honored. I have it in orange in the largest uh, in the largest section of this because of how large that area is actually stimulated. I created these words because we were working with another uh, philanthropic group that worked with children who have had uh, uh, traumatic brain injury, tumors removed, and they need very simple language and very simple drawings. This is actually the first drawing ever created in neuroscience of these five major networks. And again, that salience network is the part of your brain 
uh, the science of value to what's going on. It decides, is this important for the rest of your brain? could be very different from what you're thinking about. So again, whether you're thinking about it or daydreaming about it or just feeling impulsively motivated to do something, just take 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds to be aware of how you are thinking about that, what you're desiring, what you may be afraid of or excited about, and just allow it all to be present for a few minutes and do it once each hour. So again, the best strategy is to load that mindfulness clock onto your phone, have it go off two or three times an hour, bring it into your classrooms and play with this and find your own style as a teacher or as a, as a trainer, find the style and mix and match these as it works for you and what you see experientially works for the people who are in your classroom. This is the process of teaching a person how to be aware of rather than thinking about. So all we're doing is helping that individual shift back and forth between these three key networks. And the reason why this is so interesting to me is that back in when we first did our early brain scan studies of Buddhists focusing on pure consciousness, nuns wanting to you know, savor passages from the Bible, uh, even working with uh, Pentecostals speaking in tongues and Sufis immersing themselves in the present of the mysterious universe. Everything became very interesting that when you are in that particular network, in that salience network, that's where that balance got created between all of these other networks. So, in technically speaking, the default mode network, what I call your imagination network, this is involved with daydreaming, creative problem solving, and mind wandering. Your central executive network that I prefer to call thinking, that's where you are thinking and planning, deciding and organizing to take action. The salience network is also the social part of your brain. So when you are stimulating that anterior cingulate and insula, you are increasing empathy in the kindergarten student, in the workplace, in all kinds of individuals where empathy is, tends to be over, you know, you know, ignored. It's not brought into how do I actually train myself to feel more compassion and caring and understanding towards somebody who is different from me. So again, these brief, relaxed states of mindful awareness stimulate that part of the brain that's involved with empathy, awareness, personal values, moral values. And of course, your emotional networks is what's driving your experience in this world. And as you go through these experiences, as you learn, you're also stimulating quite a wide range of memory networks of behaviors. So whereas in 2004, maybe there were a few hundred studies on these different brain networks, um, by, 2000 and by, by now in 2019, there are like 9,000 studies on the default mode network, another, uh, you know, another um, 5,000 studies on the salience network. We now have over 20,000 studies of people became curious because they just, the whole thing grew out of the fact that when I sit back and I relax and I think I'm not thinking, my brain is more active than when I'm focused on any task. That's how it began. It began all the way back in 2004 as people gave, why is it that when I tell you to do nothing in a brain scan machine, half of your brain light up. And when I'm having you focus on a task, most of it seems looks like it's asleep. So your motivation network involves curiosity, desire, seeking of rewards. And this is again, the network that's overlooked in, in our educational system. Ah, a bell. So when we get a distraction like that, in mindfulness, we savor that. Oh, it's a moment to stop. Yawn, stretch, relax. Bring yourself back into the present moment. Ask yourself, what did you find to be the most interesting or curious? Try it right now, everyone. Just say, what have you found to be exciting so far or useful to you? Because your brain is always going to pick about one-tenth of anything that I say, even in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, our brain picks out only 10 words of the 300 words that the other person has spoken.
So nowadays in brain network theory, you're not gonna see pictures like this anymore, okay? You're gonna see uh, drawings like this that show how different parts of the brain and different functions connect and weave into each other. So each color is different. So your visual network is different from your imagination network, you know, this big red area up above here. One of the simplest networks is just your, in your lower right-hand corner is your motor network. The sensations coming in from your body comes right up here to your motor cortex, which is where the sense of yourself is. And that's what predicts the way in which you move. And then maybe a half a second later, you become aware of whatever action you've actually taken. And it really helps to see what neuroplasticity is. So these are an actual neuron in your brain sending out those incredible, you know, axons and dendrites that can weave all the way throughout your brain. This is what's forming networks. And it's almost beautiful artwork. These are living organisms. You have 85 billion of them. And what you're seeing in the lower picture here, again, this is in a young person's brain, you're going to see that the connections are very minimal here, but if I click down here along, see how many more little tiny connections are, you know, are being made? It gets thicker and thicker. This is the formation of networks. This is how you begin to build a new idea. This is how you decide that one plus one is two. And because it's plastic, because it's always constantly changing, this allows us to change old beliefs, old behaviors. It just takes a little bit of time. We have to introduce a new way of thinking to form new networks and slowly deactivate the old networks that are tied to things that we've learned in the past. And just to give you a sense of how much, this is the thalamus, you can see that in the center of this picture here, this is Grand Central Station of all your senses and even your thoughts. And all the lights that you see stimulating are the axons going out and stimulating all these other neurons in your brain. Now, this is, now this is only about a, a million neurons being represented in this particular map of the brain. So each part of our brain is incredibly interconnected to each other. And that's what's happening in real time. As a thought or a feeling, a sensation come in, different areas get lit up and go quiet all the time. It's always shifting back and forth. So this is a little bit of brain candy for everyone. And if you want to introduce, you know, brain theory and network theory and learning theory to young kids, these are the images you want to show them. They will blow your kid's mind. They'll be fascinated by it. So again, the 10 principles is relax, Visualize what you want to accomplish in the next 10 or 15 minutes as a student, as a worker, as a teacher. Focus then, throw yourself into that particular activity with all of your intention, maybe a deep inner value to keep yourself grounded. But when that mindfulness clock goes off after 20 minutes or so, just take 10 seconds to again, do that mindful yawn or super slow stretch or something pleasurable because that's enough to refresh your ability to focus on the next 20 minutes of work. Use your intuition to simply say, what have I learned so far? What have I done? If you have a particular problem, by all means, go through this kind of formal process. Don't forget to savor it. Take a few extra seconds to savor all of those intuitions so that it has a chance to form a stronger new memory and make your learning process and your work process as enjoyable as possible. Maintaining even a false sense of optimism stimulates your brain in the right way and then bring it out into the world and mindfully interact with others. These three mindful yawns is thermoregulation and it begins within the first trimester uh, in the womb. If you do not yawn, that child is gonna come out with brain damage. So yawning is associated with every form of mental and psychological and neurological problem you have. And it goes all the way back to Hippocrates, who discovered that most forms of psychological stress was caused by an imbalance of the vital fluids in your brain and that yawning would release those tainted humors and then you would be free. So it's taken a few, uh, it's taken a few millennia to do that, but that's why I and about 40 other individuals are 
very highly involved in promoting yawning as the number one fastest and easiest way to get rid of mental, neurological, and psychological stress. And again, you want these movements to be slower so you become aware of how you are moving your body. When you bring this into exercise, physical activities, yoga or whatever else, that awareness helps your motor cortex and cerebellum to form more efficient movements that are more stress-free. Don't forget the importance of self-soothing touch. All young children do it as well. Sometimes when we work with victims who have had a lot of traumatic events and, and, and those painful feelings come up, we have them hold a very soft pillow and that stroking uh, pleasure just gives you an incredible sense of relaxation. And then you can guide a person through a painful memory while they stay in a deeply relaxed state and it actually interrupts your brain ability to reconsolidate the negative emotional aspects of that trauma. So by all means, tell your students to be playful with what they are learning. Don't take their learning seriously. I want them to savor each experiential aspect of the learning. If they hate what's being, being taught to them, if they're utterly lost and confused by that incredible you know, uh, chemistry, um, formula up there on the board, take a moment and actually immerse yourself in the frustration. Take your whole classroom and let them say, yeah, this is ugh. the process of just being aware of that negative emotion is what stabilizes your entire brain so that you can find a creative solution and to continue in a creative, playful, enjoyable way in that entire learning process. So again, in closing this, do everything you possibly can to teach your students, your employees, your colleagues at work to be curious, to be gentle, to be playful, but most important, I want you to immerse yourself in the neurological experience of being mindfully relaxed and mindfully aware. And that that was powerful. Thank you so much for this, Mark. Um, if anyone wants to learn more about Mark and his programs, they can go to markrobertwaldman.com. They can find you on Facebook, on Twitter. I'll put all your information in the show notes. And Mark, I want to thank you so much for all that you've done to help the community understand this uh, the, the parts of the brain and how they work and how they operate for schools, for workplaces and for athletics. Thank you so much. And so play around with these. Try it out with a, try it out with a family member or a friend saying, hey, I heard this cra crazy neuroscience researcher saying that this playful, mindful awareness while I'm yawning and stretching, whatever else, is gonna change the entire way that my brain works and help me accomplish more goals and feel more deep sense of satisfaction. And maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, but you'll have fun in that whole process of learning and discovering and experimenting with brand new neuroscientific principles and pass them on to others. That's my hope that you'll all do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.